everyone. Welcome back to the show. It's Jasmine. I'm the host of Female Founder World and the creator of the Female Founder World events and all of our media products. Today, I've got Tiffany Ju, the founder of Chunks on the show. I wanted to invite Tiffany on because not only am I just a personal fan of her jewelry brand, the aesthetic is very cool. You should probably actually check it out at chunks.shop before we get started just to get a feel for what it is that she's built. But I just think that she's at a really interesting point in the business and her trajectory for a bootstrap business, I think has been really impressive, but also feels like something that is achievable. Like I, I, when you really talk to her and understand how she's been growing, it feels like something that you can really, you can, you can make happen if you're a bootstrap business. So she did $40,000 in revenue in 2019. That was her first year in business. I think a lot of folks who are just getting started would be happy with the first year that looked like that. But 2020, she went on and did $500,000. Again, this is fully bootstrapped. This is just her kind of like figuring it out at home and learning how to scale a company. And then last year, she did over a million in sales. This year, she's set to smash that. And she's split about 40% wholesale, 60% D2C or e-commerce. And so we kind of like get into the nuts and bolts of what it actually took to scale both of those channels and how the shape of the business kind of changed over the last three years to get to that 1 million in sales mark. We do get as tactical as possible in this episode. Obviously, that's what I'm trying to do in every episode because I think if you're someone who's trying to build a business, you want to know those answers from founders that you just can't Google. But if there are questions that you have that are lingering that you want to put to Tiffany, she's actually hosting an AMA this week, Thursday night. It's the 3rd of November, and it's going to be happening in the Female Founder World community on Geneva.com. So that's our online community. Anyone is welcome to join. We've got a link in the show notes for you to register and come along. So as you're listening to this episode, please jot down any questions you have and show up on Thursday night because Tiffany will be there to answer them for you. Alrighty, let's get into the show. You are now entering Female Founder World with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. Tiffany, welcome to Female Founder World. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Okay, so you're the founder of Chunks, which is a jewelry brand that's doing over a million in sales revenue a year, or in 2021, you hit more than a million in revenue. We love to see that kind of growth, especially for a brand that's only been around for a few years. And we're going to dive into all the details about how you did that. But let's start at the beginning with what it is that you're building at Chunks. Uh, Introduce folks that aren't familiar with your brand. Yeah, so I would say we're a super colorful, quirky, unique line of um, hair accessories. So we focus on hair claws and clips uh, made from acetate, which is actually not, it's a bioplastic, so it's like a plant-based material. Yeah, and we started in 2019. Well, I started in 2019 just out of my basement, and now we're a team of 14. So um, we've just seen a few years of like really amazing growth and it's just super fun. Very cool. And, you know, we, I've been following you guys on TikTok, on Instagram, sorry, for quite a long time before you kind of like came into the community and just love everything that you're doing. I feel like it's it's hard to explain what you're all about until you go over to your website, your Instagram account, and then you just like get the aesthetic. So I feel like people jump into the link in the show notes and go check out chunk so that you know you have some reference as we're talking through what Tiffany's built. But before you started Chunks, you had a, another business. And I want to understand 
what that was, why it worked and why you ended up kind of leaving that and moving into the accessories world. Yeah. So in 2012, it's a, it's kind of a crazy story, but, um, I'd like just gotten fired from my first nine to five job. Um, but I had this really like random idea just to dye these ombre tights. So I dyed a few in my kitchen and I, you know, took really cute pictures of them and put them up on Etsy and they like immediately went viral. So really quickly I was able to kind of build a business together, uh, a build business around that. But it was, it was a really difficult time because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know why I was doing it. And these types were really hard to make, but yeah, going viral in 2012 was, was really crazy. Cause it was like, it's, it was a long time. That's 10 years ago. So Instagram was still kind of a baby. And like when things went viral, things went super viral. And also going viral was rare. Now I feel like people every day, it's like, oh yeah, our brand went viral, our brand went viral. Hitting at that like million views or whatever is not crazy. But back in 2012, there weren't that many people or as many people using these platforms. So going viral was rare. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, but it was, I mean, it was amazing. I, I learned all the hard lessons and, um, and also like, I just felt, I just felt like really supported by actually my customers and it was, it was a great time. It was a difficult time. So how did you transition out of that business and into chunks? Yeah. So I started that business in 2012. Um, and it sustained itself pretty well, but, in 2015, I had a kid. And um, I think after that, I was like, oh, like making these tights is not sustainable for my body. Mm-hmm. Um, they were just really, really labor intensive. Um, and also like, I was just kind of ready to try something else. So the last few years of that business, probably starting around 2015, when I had my kid, I, I took my time to kind of experiment with different mediums. I did like clothing for a while. I did other kind of soft goods, soft goods, accessories. Um, I did jewelry for a minute. I was just trying a bunch of different things. And then in 2018, I kind of took a year off and just made art. I was like, I need to get back to my truth. (laughs) Um, And yeah, this kind of idea popped into my head because I, I honestly love a hair clip, but even in 2018, it was hard to find a cute one that was like high quality. There was just like, you know, the crappy ones you get at the drugstore. Yeah. I feel like this trend was like really just starting then. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was like, there is an opportunity here. And like, no one is really in this space yet. And I already knew the manufacturing part of it and the margins were really great. And I didn't have a ton of competition in the space. So it was just like, check, check, check. I think when I have a business idea, it's really important for me to like put it through the ringer and make sure that like from a practical standpoint, everything works, you know? Yeah. I love that you just said there about, you know, I just took a year off to make art and like get back to, you know, get back to myself. And I just think that's such an important thing to say because when we look at people's stories, particularly, particularly, you know, successful entrepreneurs, you kind of, you see like one business and then they like went into the next one. And then actually like in my experience, when I was closing down the buff in my beauty business, like I knew I was closing that down for quite a while, but the, the shift into female founder world, that was like a really like messy year of just like 
testing stuff out, playing with stuff, feeling a little bit lost, like thinking, oh, maybe entrepreneurship isn't for me. This like really year of like this dark night of the soul of just mm-hmm. maybe I'll be a writer. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. You know? Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Um, but then when you look back at the story, it all kind of, when you connect the dots, it looks really linear, but it didn't feel like that in the moment. So I feel like, thank you for saying that, that you took that year and this idea didn't just come to you in, you know, as you were closing down your first business and you were able to like parlay it into the second straight away. Cause that's not the, that's not the norm. I don't think. Totally. I think from the outside so many times it does seem like that linear, oh, I just knew what I was going to do, but uh-huh. I spent years, years of like searching. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I was like, I don't know, maybe I'll just, maybe small business ownership is not for me either. Yeah. Like maybe I'll just go into food. <laughs> I was like, maybe I'll open a restaurant. <laughs> I think it's, I think it's something that I did personally. Cause I'm always, I always need a why for what I'm doing. Otherwise, like, I'm just not going to put myself fully into something. And so searching for that, like reason, like, why am I doing this is half the battle. Yeah, no, I agree. I, that resonates with me so much. I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people who are listening as well. So let's go into the early days of Chunks. And once you kind of had this idea, what did you, what did you launch with you? Were you on a Shopify site? Did you have a couple of products? Did you shoot it yourself? Like how, how are you getting things going? Or did, were you much more like sophisticated than that in the early days? Oh God, no. I was, I was actually like 15 grand in debt from my previous business. Cause it was, it was doing well, but it was like a trend that popped off in 2012. So like, yeah, you know, every year it kind of went down and my, I didn't know how to manage my finances and things like that. Uh So I actually ended like in debt a little bit. When I decided to do chunks, I was like, okay, I really need to be resourceful and bootstrap. I actually took out a $7,000 microloan from Cabbage. One of the things about the hair clip vendor that I was working with was the minimums were super low. And so I just did like a dozen styles, I think. And yeah, I just really kind of bootstrapped everything and did everything myself. I had a Squarespace website and I just kept it really lean because when it's one person doing everything, I don't want to stretch myself thin and do too much and not do any of it well. So I was like, just going to make sure that the website is really nice. The photography is really nice. Let me just reach out to the few wholesalers that I already have or retailers that I have relationships with. Like, let me just keep it tight. And then also like put it on socials and see what, see what feedback I get. I want to understand how you got those first customers. Cause I know that now the business is pretty well split, you know, 40% wholesale, 60% D to C in the early days. What was that split in that first year? Oh, it was probably mostly wholesale just because I was going off, you know, my previous mm-hmm. relationships and yeah, the, the online orders were just trickling in. So I got into like a few shops and that's kind of where it started. So, you know, majority wholesale and then, and then it slowly kind of started tipping the other way. And then when 2020 hit, obviously my wholesale went down to like zero yeah. and then, but then e really took off. So it's just been kind of an ebb and flow the whole time. On the wholesale side, were you using platforms like Fair or Abound or Bulletin or were you, did you have someone helping you with sales or was it just your relationships? Like 
How have you been scaling that now that you're, you know, a much bigger business? I'm sure it's not just, you know, those existing relationships that you had from your last business. Honestly, I started out with just a few stores that I like knew from before. I'm always hesitant to like go on those other like platforms like Fair and Bulletin just because like it's more for me to manage (laughs) and I don't, it's just like too much for me and creating a relationship with a retailer through email or through socials is just much more doable for me and just feels better for me, I guess. For folks who are, they're in this space, maybe they want to kind of build up that wholesale side of their business. What are some of the documentation? What are some of the processes? What are some of the things that you need to kind of have in place or create as you're exploring that scaling that side of the business? That was the biggest learning curve I think that I had in 2020 when I went from a one woman business to, you know, even having a couple employees, you really start to like need these systems and operating procedures. So that was like the theme, I think of my like late 2020, early 2021 was operating procedures and putting things in a place, (laughs) putting things in Dropbox and, Uh you know. Not just having your like screenshots on your phone and your reminders for yourself in your calendar. It's like, no, we've got to communicate this to a team now. Oh my gosh. That was such a big kind of mindset shift of like going from years of just having my own business where I could keep everything in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was in a, I was in a place where I really wanted to let things go. Like I really wanted, not because I didn't want to do it, but just because the business was growing and I had to, if I wanted to keep up with the pace of growth, then I needed to like have people help me. And, and, and I hate doing things messily like especially when there's too many cooks in the kitchen I just I can't stand it and so I was yeah it was just such a such a learning curve for me to learn all that I still kind of am am learning that part of it like my ops director I just hired a a few months ago and she's been really amazing at helping me next level kind of operational things amazing when you were kind of making those, I know you're a team of four now, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, 14. 14. Oh my God. Yeah. We heard that when we were talking before <laughs> the show. That's massive. Okay. Amazing. Um, when you're making those like first hires, what are the things that you kind of handed off? Um, and how did your role change? Cause like I'm in the process now where we've just had like contractors and people helping out as needed for female founder world, but now I'm about to make my first hire And there's kind of like two ways that I can go with it. And I'm trying to figure out, okay, do I want someone to come in and do something new in the business? Or do I want someone to come in and take off the things that I've already figured out and and take the lead on that and let me kind of explore the new things? How did you think about it? Oh, man, it's such a not a black and white. There's so many variables in that, Mm. you know. But I think when I first started hiring, um, I knew I needed to hire because like, I was shipping everything myself and it was taking up more than half my time. So I was like, okay, this is definitely a task oriented thing that I need to hire somebody for. I think anytime you're, you're doing something is taking like more than 40% of your time. Yeah. And it, and it's the thing that's not like lighting you up. That's yeah. That's usually the thing you need to hire for. And it's really interesting that 
you brought this question up because it's the it's kind of the theme of what I've been thinking about the past month because I actually recently handed off a lot of my design work um, to mm. my creative assistant and I've moved into a marketing director role and I'm really excited about it. I I think like that's where the business needed attention was the marketing strategy. And my ops director and I really quickly realized like we couldn't hire a marketing director yet because so much of the brand is me and my like values and what I care about. And um, yeah, and I was excited to do it. And so like, that's such a big hire, like a marketing director, like you got to pull out some big guns for that. And if we hired someone outside of the company, it would have shifted like the messaging too much. So we were like, that strategy needs to be built in-house first. Yeah, that's a really smart way of thinking about it. You launched Chunks kind of at the time where the D2C world was changing and, and shifted a lot, you know, like there was that golden era of building an e-commerce business where everyone was just funneling money into Facebook and Instagram ads and it was working and it was easy, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, not easy, but it was like a really straightforward kind of formula. Sure. It's, it hasn't been like that while you've been building chunks. And I want to know what some of the channels are that have been working for you to build the e-commerce side of the business. Oh man. I know those, those golden days. (laughs) I mean, even when I started Chunks, I think I um, was fortunate enough that um, there was a lot of attention paid on these small creative businesses coming up during the pandemic. And I think they really kind of highlighted my business as being in that and also in the kind of aesthetics of the nineties trend and also being an Asian owned business. Yeah. Um, So I was really fortunate that I kind of got to ride that wave. Um, But when it comes to marketing and things, I really always come back to what feels true to me. I'm not like a, I'm not like a data driven ads uh, focused person. That's just not the kind of marketing that I intuitively understand. And so it's hard for me to make decisions off of data. Um, And so the kind of marketing that that I'm good at is like, what do we care about as a brand and how mm. can we talk about that? How can we talk about things that people aren't talking about? And I think like, even when I started Chunks, I wanted to start Chunks with the tagline of proudly made in China because there was coming from the maker world, there was so much stigma about Chinese manufacturing and there was a lot yeah. of shame, shame around it. I've and seen you talk about this. Yeah. And I just thought like, hmm, that's so weird that there's like so much shame and like it's something to hide, even though it's so ubiquitous. Mm. And so talking about that and being open about that was something that I don't think people were doing. And that made me stand out as well. And I think I tend to approach things in that way of like, let's find the thing that no one's doing. But it has to still come from like a super genuine place. But I think that's like just part of my personality is like to be a little bit contrarian, but it works. Yeah, I want to like better understand that and dig into that, you know, the whole idea of um, proudly made in China and why there there are so many misconceptions around production in China and, and why actually a lot of the time it is 
the more um, sustainable, high quality option? And where do you think those kind of like myths and misconceptions have come from? And what are you trying to kind of change about that? Yeah, I mean, if you just look at the history of manufacturing, you know, um, at one point, the US was the capital, the world capital of manufacturing, right? Mm -hmm. And now, and in the past 50 to 70 years, it's been China that's really come up from a third world country to a manufacturing economic powerhouse. And when that happens so quickly, it's going to get a little, it's going to get a little crazy, Um, just like it does in any like developing manufacturing country. Yeah. And so I think a lot of those assumptions um, and, you know, some of the the crazy stuff is definitely true, but a lot of it happened in like the nineties and it's like stuck in our, in our collective memory Mm. And, and I think there's also a lot of like political distrust and other factors um, going into, you know, like why we associate Chinese goods negatively. But yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. But I mean, if you look at Chinese manufacturing, they, it is as diverse as any other manufacturing country. And so even in the U.S., you can say that there are, you know, sweatshops and really unethical labor violations. And that's same with every manufacturing company. There's ethical manufacturing. There's also unethical manufacturing. So what are some of the things that you do when you're trying to make sure that the partners that you work with do meet your, you know, your values and your quality standards? How are you verifying that? Yeah, so it's a bit quantitative and qualitative, I think. Like, it really is a relationship that you're building. And so with any other relationship, you know, we um, we want it to be transparent. And so there's a little bit of an instinctual thing there of like, okay, let's communicate and let's just be super transparent and um, build trust. And then there's like really tactical things to do too, is like, make sure that they're up to date on certifications, make sure that um, if we need extra certifications that we're doing it, you know, through the right um, third party organizations. And yeah, we do factory checks. It was actually like a goal, a 2020 goal of mine to just go over there for a trip and Mm. hopefully do like annual trips. Um, But I don't think that's going to happen. No. <laughs> even even at this point, I don't know if that's going to happen anytime soon. But yeah, we do the world like, is looking different. Very. But we still, you know, hop on Zoom and um, talk every day to them. And yeah. Awesome. Very cool. I want to keep talking about this like DTC marketing landscape and what's working, what's not working. Are you guys leaning into TikTok. Are you doing a lot of like growth or paid marketing? I know you said you're more of a brand marketer than like a growth marketer necessarily or a um, paid expert. Are you doing events, partnerships? Like what kind of stuff's moving the needle for you? It's such a wild time for that kind of stuff now. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I was never into paid marketing. I think like uh, in 2020, I like no, 2021, I dipped my toe in like paid marketing and I quickly was like, nah, this doesn't, (laughs) this doesn't feel right to me. Um, and honestly, I just, I, I really resonate with more like authentic, genuine marketing myself. So I, I want to stick to that. I know like UGC is really big now. 
um, user-generated content. And there's a lot of like companies starting to fill that need. And I just was doing some like exploring to see what that, see what those kind of services offered. But it's still all about relationship building at the end of the day. And I really want to keep that in-house because I think relationships um, Mm. are at the core of what we care about with, whether it's with our retailers, whether it's with each other, like our team members, whether it's with influencers, like I want those relationships to be genuine. Um, I think like when I started Chunks, the best marketing uh, was for me was always just having those like brand advocates. If you can create like a really strong relationship with your audience, they'll do amazing marketing for you, you know? So are you, um, are you at Chunks? Like is influencer marketing like a really big piece of what you're doing as you're, as you're stepping into this new role as marketing director, is that something where you're like, okay, let's like lean into this more, are you looking more at TikTok influencers or Instagram influencers? How do you think about that? Yeah, we work with a few um, influencers. We, I'm, I'm revisiting that strategy and seeing what other opportunities um, we might lean into. But we kind of ha- have our toe dips, you know, in a lot of places. Obviously, like Instagram is our kind of core channel Mm. um and then tiktok we're you know we're we're up to like 30k uh followers but tiktok's you know tiktok who knows (laughs) i know it's like it's like you know i speak in in the community that we have in geneva and you're doing an ama in there which i'm really excited about um but in our in our kind of like private community it's one of the topics that we that we revisit all the time when folks are like I've gone viral and I didn't sell anything or like Mm -hmm. I've gone viral and it's in a country that I don't ship to. Like, how do I, how do I like tweak this strategy to make it worthwhile? Mm. Um, It's this, it's this really interesting thing trying to watch like consumer brands, like figure that whole space out. I know there's like so much going on right now. And I think for me, I always try to come back to just like, okay, right now is the time to just watch what's unfolding. Cause I get very woo-woo about it and I'm, I just see it all as kind of energy exchanges mm. and it's just so in flux right now. And I feel like right now is the time for just us to be us and watch what's going on because everything is like just shifting so, so quickly. It is really interesting. Um, I was talking uh, early this week with Coco Moko. She's a trend forecaster on TikTok and she, I think she does BuzzFeed's TikTok too. Um, but she, you know, was saying how so many, pretty much what you just said, like so many brands and what they're doing, what they're kind of getting wrong is they're just, it, it, it looks like they're almost like stressed trying to keep to these trends all the time and constantly trying to infuse their product into these trends. And, and I can see how that can lead to sales and traction in the short term, but it's probably not the best long-term brand building strategy. And she was kind of suggesting that you just need to find what is the thing that you can authentically speak to and just speak to that and, and, and not to lead, not to worry too much about training sounds or trends or whatever. And, and that that's what's going will cut through. And I think at the end of the day, like that's what storytelling and marketing and content has always been about, but we can always get wrapped up in new platforms and feel like we need to adapt ourselves or kind of shape shift to fit into these kind of 
boxes of what the platforms expect from us. And I think that it can be like quite dangerous for brands. Oh yeah, totally. I think there's always a middle path, you know, it's not like we're ignoring what the trending sounds are or what, you know, I think like we're still paying attention, but we're not going to get like swept up in the, in the tornado. Totally. Yeah. Cause you can really easily lose yourself in that. A hundred percent. I love what you're saying about it being an energy exchange. Like I am also like super woo woo and I'm leaning into that kind of mindset as well. Um, It's definitely an interesting time. Yes. (laughs) I want to talk about your e-commerce tech stack and some of the, I don't know, Shopify apps, if you're on Shopify or tools that you're using, who are you guys using for email? Do you do SMS? What are some of those, what are some of those platforms that are helping grow the business? Yeah, we're doing, um, email and SMS through Klaviyo. Yep. We were, um, I started on MailChimp, but we switched to Klaviyo, I think, mm, beginning of the year. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's been good. Um, we switched from Squarespace to Shopify, I think, around the same time. Yeah. And Shopify is great. What else do we use? We love Shopify. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. ShipStation for mm-hmm. fulfillment. Those are our core ones. This is a question great. for my op- operations yeah. manager. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it in the AMA when we're in the Geneva group. People will definitely ask. Okay. So that leads me really, really nicely into my last question for you, which is for a resource. It's what we ask everyone who comes on the show can be a book, a few books, podcasts, a habit that you have, something that's been helping you and the business up level. I've definitely gone through an evolution of resources. I think like my kind of gateway into self-development stuff was You Are a Badass by Jen Sincero and Big Magic too. I feel like those were very, I was in this phase in like when I was making the art into like manifesting stuff. Uh And then when I started Chunks, it kind of evolved into like tactical stuff. So like a lot of podcasts like Amy Porterfield and like James Mm -hmm. Wedmore and like Gold Digger. That was back in 2018, 2019. So I'm sure there's We have followed a very similar path in in terms of like what you're consuming into content wise. Yeah. Yeah. So those podcasts were really great for just like tactical and mindset. And then I got into like books, a lot of audiobooks, because that was still when I was like shipping all my stuff myself. So I would just like put on audiobook and just like ship stuff and Uh be like crying. (laughs) Uh, But Profit First was a huge one because it gave me a lot of good foundational advice on how to manage my sales revenue, my income, and like put it into buckets. I forget which one it was, but Rocket Fuel or Traction. I read both of them, but Mm -hmm. by Gina Wickman. But that was, there was one that um, talked about like the visionary and the integrator. And I thought that was a really interesting concept. Who Not How by Dan Sullivan, The E-Myth, Radical Candor, Rise by Patty Azzarello is really good. Mm-hmm. Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. I love mm-hmm. I love her. She's really easy to listen to. And then the past year, I've kind of taken a break from those, those types of books. And I developed a pretty consistent mindfulness practice yep. the past six months. And that has really, really helped me. I think like those first years, I was looking outside of myself for content to help me. Yeah. And then now, like this past year, I've really been like just looking inward and like searching for 
my own, just strengthening my own intuition and guiding myself and self-discovery. So mindfulness has been really helpful. I use the waking up app, which is like my favorite. Oh, what is it? The waking up app. Waking up. Yeah. It's really great. It's the, the content is just like super, super high level. Yeah. So a lot of like Buddhist philosophy <laughs> Love it. and then podcasts. I still listen to, I've been listening to a lot of uh, Aubrey Marcus and Andrew Huberman and they're very like self-development in like a Aubrey Marcus is very like spiritual. And then Andrew Huberman's very like scientific neurohacking mm-hmm. kind of stuff on my audible list. I still have a couple things that I'm going to start getting into very soon. 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman, which is like time. Man- it's like the subheader is like time management for mortals, but it's kind of a philosophy on time management thing. And the Diamond Cutter, which is mm-hmm. like a pretty I've well-known. Good things about that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a well, pretty well-known like business book, but I think it's like written by Tibetan monks or something. Uh-huh. So yeah. I'm like really deep into this like spiritual bend. Amazing. I love that. Okay. Well, thank you so much that I've, I've just like taken notes on all of those. We're going to put them in the show notes. If people want to read those books, listen to the audio books, Tiffany, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited for our AMA that's in the Geneva home. If anyone wants to join, meet Tiffany, ask a question. You can just hit the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Jasmine. Bye. It's Jasmine again. Thanks for listening to that episode of the Female Founder World Podcast. Hope you guys loved it. And if you did, please drop us a five-star review wherever you listen and tell people about the show. Sharing us to your Instagram stories, tagging Female Founder World, it truly makes my day. I cannot tell you how stoked I am when I see all of you listening to the show, sharing your thoughts and telling your friends. And it's also really how Female Founder World has been growing. We're a business too. And word of mouth is a really important way for us to spread the word about what it is that we're doing. Okay. Thanks guys. I'll see you next time.